Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, thanks. You know, after the morning service, had some uh, nice comments, encouraging comments about the books project that we're doing and, and about missions. Uh, it was just uh, one of those times where we stayed and lingered a little bit longer to visit. And I know Wendy had some very nice visits uh, with some, some young ladies. Um, and then just listening to Kent, you know, you, it's very exciting about the Hillside property. I mean, uh, but as you know, as I, it's such a unique blessing. I mean, I can't even, you know, the, the emotions as you start to think about it. I know Southview has kind of gone full circle on this, but you know, some of us have spent, spent a lot of years in that building and I know it's just a building. And so I, I don't want to get too carried away, but it, it's a unique blessing. And, and, and I think it's just going to be, you know, just wonderful. It's just so it's so unique and so interesting and a tremendous blessing. I don't even know, even know how to say that. And then uh, to have a, a former student here, Leanne, is really kind of kind of cool too. I, that happens to me every once in a while. But then to you know you talk shop about how things were, and I, I, she helped me remember when, or John did help me remember when she graduated, and I start thinking back to those days and. Uh, they were good, you know. Teaching teaching high school was was a was a challenge, but it was a it was a blessing and a half. And uh, so it's neat to see you and you're you know you're honoring the Lord with your family and seeing your husband here with you. It's just you know it's very special to see that. Well, I'd like to open with a word of prayer, and then we are going to get into the last two aspects of the five that we started this morning. Well, Lord, thank you for this time together, and uh, thank you for the blessings that we've already had. Listening to the music, listening to the prayer request, and seeing prayers being answered, and, and we just lift them up to you that that you will be gracious unto us as as we move forward. Thank you for um, that that whole hillside property situation. It just kind of boggles the mind a little bit how you bless and how and we want to praise you for that. But thank you for this time together. May you be honored. Uh, may missions go forward, continue to go forward from Southview Bible Church. In your son's precious name, amen. Well, I'd like to start by just uh, saying a couple things about the first three, and then we'll, we'll get into the last, the last two aspects. And, and as I mentioned more than once, um, you know, these are five aspects of missions. They're not the five aspects of missions. So please keep that in mind. There's, there's many other wonderful things we could talk about regarding missions, and, and maybe someday you know, those things will move forward. But our first aspect was, we talked about this morning, was the roots of Christian missions. And we went back to the Old Testament. We, we talked about uh, Adam and Eve. And the, the summary of the first, the summary of uh, the first aspect, the roots of Christian missions, is this. There, were, there are three basic um, commissions of the Old Testament. And it's a little different way of looking at it, but it's legitimate and it's God-honoring as you, as you take the time to get into them. But the first great commission of the Old Testament was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in doing so, God's likeness, His image, His glory would fill the earth. And so this multiplication mandate was given to Adam and Eve. And we, we talked about this morning how, um, how, the, uh, how they dropped the ball, so to speak. And uh, it didn't go. Uh, it didn't go the way that it should have. But the point was, God ordained His likeness and His image to go forth, and it is going to go forth. The second uh, great commission of the Old Testament is basically that the seed of Abraham would be blessed, and in this blessing, God would be glorified. 
And that brings us to us. You know, we're, we're part of the recipients of those blessings. But the point, the key point was that God would be glorified because of that. And then the third and final great commission of the Old Testament is the charge given to the nation of Israel itself. And it was, it was supposed to be a holy nation. It was supposed to be a nation that people would look from the outside into, uh, into Israel and say, yes, these people are blessed. These people have a, have a, a special God. And, uh, and of course, that had its ups and downs. As you read the Old Testament, that kind of went and that kind of came. The obedience, the disobedience. But the, the bottom line is the third and final great commission of the Old Testament is the charge given to Israel to bring glory to God among all the nations of the world. It, it didn't fulfill that. At times it did, but it, it didn't fulfill that totally. Now, I'd like to take us to the summary of these three. Better late than never, I always say. And then to number two, the, the, we talked about the, uh, the greatness of the Great Commission. And the summary of that was, was simply that sometimes when people look at the Great Commission and they think of you know, Matthew 28 and they say, take the commission to the world and, and, and reach every people group, it, it sounds a bit overwhelming. And from a human perspective, it is. But the greatness of the Great Commission isn't because of the great task that lies ahead. It's because of the, the one who ordained that task, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the third one uh, we talked about, we, we, we talked about the sending father and the sent church. And, and the Gospel of John discusses that a great deal. And we talked about what the, uh, the Greek word sent means and, and how it really should be applied. And when we think of being sent from the, old, uh, from the New Testament, we, we should think that uh, just the way God sent his son to us, then the Holy Spirit was sent. And then also the local church sends out individuals to be missionaries. And uh, so the word sent is very special and it has, it comes all the way down from God sending his son to us sending out missionaries as a local body of believers. So as we move from those three review, we're going to move to number four. And number four is to him be glory in the church. And, and really when we, we, when we talk about this aspect in, in discussions about Christian missions, we got to be a little careful because I've been involved in some of these and maybe you have too where you, you, you study missions and you read books about it and uh, you study this and that. It's easy to talk about you know, the pioneering missionaries. Like, uh, I, I got to admit, I can get pretty excited about you know, a, a William Carey and a, and a Hudson Taylor and you think of Jim Elliott, you know, Jim Elliott. Just lots of guys, individuals who are God-honoring. But we, we start talking about them we start talking about uh, statistical analysis about missions. And, and I know I shared some earlier with you uh, on the 4th and this, and this morning. We talk about strategic initiatives and, you know, we're planning the strategy. And we do this in Peru too. How we're going to, you know, most, how to be most, you know, efficacious with our funds and, and this and that. We talk about contextualization and, you know, how to fit the gospel into the culture. That's all that word means. Um, missions organizations, those, sometimes those things dominate your topic. And you got to be a little careful because uh, you sometimes lose track of what's really important. You know, what, what can get lost in all that conversation is what the local church is supposed to be doing. 
And we want to keep that in mind as you talk missions, as you, you know, put your funds towards missions. Uh, just, just remember, the local church is the key. Um, as we continue to, to make that point, we, we know the book of Acts is key in helping us to understand missions and to understand the local church. And so let's just look at some verses that make this point. Acts 14, 21 to 23. Very familiar verses. Uh, as you study the book of Acts and you look at Paul's missionary journeys, these are the things that, that show up in every one of his missionary journeys. Things like, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. Paul would plant a church and then his goal was always to go back and, and kind of reinvigorate it. Make sure it was, was going, uh, that it was going in the right direction. He never left the church high and dry. He never started a church and then never sent someone back or went back himself. Confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. And that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And so that's just kind of a... uh, The format that we should be following as the local church. And then we look at Peter. Here's another passage, an encouragement. Really, it's a little bit of an, uh, an admonition about the body of Christ from 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11. Let's see, let's see that. Now remember, we were just talking about Paul. Now this is Peter. But ye are a chosen generation. Think of, you know, think of the church. Think of the body of believers. But ye are the chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. That you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. Which had not obtained mercy, but now has obtained mercy. Peter goes on. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from uh, fleshly lust, which war against, uh, against the soul. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles... That whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And that's the whole point. The church should be doing things in a way that glorifies God. That the world looks at us, sees the work of whatever church it is, whatever believer it is, and they, they can, and God gets the glory for that. So, the church is not just crucial to missions, it's the very reason that missions exist. And if we keep that in mind, it it helps us to stay focused. In one sense, the commission to missions was given to every individual as believers. And that's that's where the discipleship classes come in. That's where going out and reaching to your neighbors. But, in another sense, it was given primarily to the local church. Each of us individually is called to obey Christ's command to make disciples... Who know and obey his word. But how does he intend to do this? So his word is clear. As we pursue obedience. And as we practice obedience to his word. We actively build up disciples. And plant other churches. Through the local church. So this local church is involved in planting churches in Peru. And and other places where your, your missionaries are. And so the local church makes clear who is and who is not a disciple through the baptism and membership in the body. That's what has been ordained. The local church is the, uh, makes that determination through a process of uh, 
having saved membership. The local church is where most dis, uh, discipling naturally takes place. You can read that in Hebrew 10, 24 to 25. This is where the body is built up. The local church sends out missionaries and cares for missionaries after they are sent. Many verses that support that. And healthy reproducing local churches are normally the aim and the end of our missionary efforts. And that's the absolute gospel, so to speak. When, when I think of what's going on in, in Peru at the, at the Bible seminary where, where I teach, the absolute goal is to produce God-honoring men and women who are trained and the men can go out and become pastors and start churches and those, those churches themselves can propagate themselves. And we have, we have that going on. And it's so exciting to see that. We have graduates of the seminary going out, starting churches, turning it over to someone else and then goes on to start another church. So in making the biblical argument for the church to be, to be paramount in missions, I've got to be just a little careful because I don't want to imply that parachurch organizations uh, cannot be used in missions. And you could think of probably you know, all kinds of different parachurch organizations, maybe some better than others, maybe some a little more God-honoring than others. Because, but I do believe there are some parachurch organizations that are, that are necessary, that, that, are, that are helpful. But it's just that when missions-related things are done outside the church, those things can lose their focus, and, and uh, sometimes they can go off in a spiritual tangent, so to speak. So we got, I, I just think uh, there, it, it, we have to be careful that when parachurch organizations start to become more prominent than the local church, you, you've, got, you've got some issues, and you're gonna, you should address those. Here's a quote from Robert Plummer a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, about the parachurch organization topic. He says this, quote, A missionary theology which places the missionary task in the hands of a few church leaders or with a parachurch body lacks support from the Pauline letters. Modern parachurch missions can be an attempt to solve the problems of the church's anemic missionary vision by removing the missionary task from the church. Missions rather should be returned to the church. Should have never left, but it should be returned to the church. The most effective way to do this is to teach and preach the gospel accurately. Because if the gospel is preached and taught accurately and understood accurately, then missions really will be done correctly. Uh... And so Robert Plummer is, ma- is really just, he's making the point that, you know, too, too many churches um, literally are, too many churches are, are, are just dropping the ball. They're, they're, they're not doing their God-ordained biblical responsibility in missions. You know, some of them uh, dropping the ball, they're not, they're, some of them are not even in the ball game. They're, they really don't know how, how to do missions. And as a result, it's not a God-honoring situation at all. But I think we got to be careful with the parachurch organizations uh, from, a, from a local church perspective. Sometimes, you know, you want to throw out the, the baby with the, with the, ba- with the bath uh, water. you got to be careful doing that because some parachurch organizations can come alongside and, and be an asset. They, they can help us as the local church. But... That's for a discerning church body to, to figure out and, and to, to be careful with. Now, let's finish this fourth aspect of missions with a, 
with a, a possible question. Uh, as I told you, uh, I'm, putting, I'm putting together a class. And as I put together this class, I'm, you know, every, I, I'll get hit with, I, wanna, I need to make up some multiple choice questions uh, for this class or some short answer essay questions. So I'm putting together a class. And, and here's, here's a question that I came up with that very well could make its way onto the midterm exam or, or the final exam. And it says this. What role does the church play in God's plan for missions? So just, just think about that yourself. Uh, you don't have to answer it, but just think. What role does the church play in God's plan for missions? Please include supporting verses uh, worth 10 points. <laughs> see how that, see how it works. And so here's a, a sneak peek at an answer. I haven't finalized the answer key yet, but I'm starting to put it together. But I just kind of wanted to show you how my thought process would go through in developing this. The answer to that, what role does the church play in God's plan for missions? Please include supporting verses. The church composed of both Jew and Gentile believers, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, was a great mystery hidden for generations, but is now revealed through the ministry and the letters of Paul. Ephesians 3, 4 through 5. It is through the church that God makes known his manifold wisdom to the heavenly domain, the church. Created by Christ Jesus, Ephesians 3, 2, is both the realization of God's eternal plan as well as the agent of carrying out God's eternal plan for missions. Ten points. You give some supporting evidence and the student is, is basically showing you that yes, they understand uh, that relationship, they understand what we're talking about regarding the, the local church and its role, its role in missions. Now, the church is responsible for sending out missionaries, but, and we know that. And those missionaries that are sent out have been called by the Holy Spirit and then sent out by the local church. And, and one of the things that I, I want to emphasize is, is that relationship. So the Holy Spirit and the local church is in a very real sense, they, it's a team. They team up together to get that person, to get those missionaries to the field. The person themselves, the missionary, is confident, or they wouldn't be where they are, is confident that the Holy Spirit is calling them to missions. And the church better be likewise confident that this person is being called to missions. It, it's much like when a church calls a pastor. When a church calls a, a pastor, they're confident that the Holy Spirit is, is calling, is, is, is saying, this local body is calling that man. Then on the other hand, it's got to be the same for that man that's coming. That, that man that is coming as the pastor has to be convinced that the Holy Spirit is calling him to that church. And if that's the case then you have a win-win situation. But it should, be this, it should be just as significant and it should be just as important as calling a pastor your, to your church as it is calling, uh, sending a missionary from your church. It's, it's, just, it's just very important. And even in the short time, and we've been, we've been missionaries just in our older age, I could give you stories that are absolutely wonderful. I mean, I could tell you stories about people that God... The way they're using them, it's like, you know, you just stand here and you're just kind of in awe. But on the other hand, I've seen some that, holy macros, what are they doing here? You know, what a waste of time and energy and money. How did this happen? And I think it happened because 
It was not the win-win situation that we were, talk- we were talking about. It wasn't the Holy Spirit leading them from that local church or them being convinced that they were going to that mission field. Well, the gospel as the heart of the church. No, there can be absolutely no argument about that. So becoming a missionary isn't like becoming an accountant or a nurse for that matter. But God sets apart missionaries in a unique providential way. A lot of times we call that a calling. And I think that's a legitimate thing to do. If the gospel is the heart of the church, and it is, there's just no question about it. If the gospel is the heart of the church that keeps the lifeblood pumping and flowing to its members, then missionaries are like, uh uh-oh, I'm going to have a flashback here, Leanne. That missionaries are like the vascular system, transporting that lifeblood to every organ and every appendage and every inch of the skin in the world. Just as a beating heart is essential for our physical life, the gospel is essential for spiritual life of missions. But without the rest of the vascular system, the missionaries, things will not propagate. So as the church preaches and teaches the gospel message, there, there has to be a way to get that message out. Of course, there is within the local body and, and doing the discipleship 101 and, and talking to your neighbors. Yes. But you want to you want to be a part of the you want to be a part of world missions. You want to be a part of cross-cultural missions. And in order to do that, you have to send out missionaries in a God honoring way. Romans 10:14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? I know that's a rhetorical question, but we know the answer is obviously they cannot. And so the word has to get out and the word gets out through your missionaries. As Southview Bible Church counts its missionaries, it's clear that this church has done a great deal to extend its, its spiritual vascular system, so to speak, around the world. And we, uh, we just feel so fortunate to be a part of that and be blessed by that. So as we move on, I want to conclude with, we know the role of the church, the local church, but... Maybe the one I wanted to spend a little extra time on is this. Is that missions cannot fail. You know, this church... You know, I, I want to be careful about saying... You know, this, this church has, has the opportunity to play a role in that. But, don't think you're essential. Don't think... You know, we never want to think we're too important that God can't get along without us. Because He can get along without us just fine. It's a privilege for you and I, for this church, to be a part of God's plan, part of God's missionary efforts, part of something that cannot fail. So, thus far in the messages, we have asserted that God is on a mission to fill the earth with his glory. And he will. And it's going to happen. He plans to go... To do this through a people whom he has redeemed by the blood of his son. That's you and I. And empowered with the Holy Spirit. That is you and I. God's people will be sent out into the world to all nations to proclaim salvation in Christ alone and to make disciples. What we, what we will now see is the absolute certainty of God's success in his mission and the resultant success of Christian missions. So, in serving the sovereign God as a goer or a sender, that's what either we are one of those or we're just flat out being uh, disobedient. You're either a goer 
or you're a part of the church and you're, and you're, you're helping to send people in some shape or form. We participate in a cause that cannot fail. And first we're going to consider looking at two Old Testament passages. These are just Old Testament passages that remind us of something that we've already said. Numbers 14, 19 through 23. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even unto now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. Okay, now, here's the part that I want you to pick up on uh, because it makes a point within the context. But as truly as I live, this is God speaking. This is, you know, as truly as I, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now... These ten times and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers. Neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. Now, in this first passage, God gives an oath. He's, he's giving an oath to guarantee his judgment that these rebellious Israelites will die in the, in the wilderness. Within that reality, within that fact, the oath of God gives us Two grounds, two interesting grounds that are seen above. He says, as I live, this is the oath, this is the oath of God. All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. That is going to happen. It, it, it's an oath that is, that is guaranteed to occur that God's glory is going to fill the earth. God's intention to fill the earth with his glory is as certain as his very existence. Now... I don't claim to know the total timing of all that and how that that's all going to unfold. And, and uh, you know, as we head into the rapture time, the tribulation, the second coming and the millennium, I don't, I don't know all that. No one does. But the, the fact of the matter is, it's going to occur. And another passage that makes a, a similar point from the Old Testament is Malachi 1, 8 through 11. It says this, And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice... Is it not evil? Once again, you're, you're, we're trying to see something within the context uh, of this uh, uh, bad sacrifice. Is it not evil to offer this, this, uh, this wounded animal, this blind animal, uh, a poor sacrifice? Is that not a bad thing? Yeah, it is. And if ye offer the lame and sick, is that not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? No, not even a secular governor is going to be pleased with that kind of offering. So why would you give it to God? And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your person, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. So here it is. Here, here's, the, the, here's the point within this context. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. It may not be great among the Gentiles today. And as you know, it's dishonored among the Gentiles today. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathens, saith the Lord of hosts. That is going to happen. 
God declares that his name will be great among the nations. It's going to happen. Even the disobedience of God's own people that we read about can't thwart that plan. As bad as Israel was, the chosen people, his nation, they're not going to stop his plan. The glory of God will be truly global and the unfinished task of missions will be completed. Now, as we look at some other reasons why it's going to be completed and we're going to look at some other reasons why it can't fail. Now, as you can see, we're, we're moving the time frame into the book of Revelation and we're going to talk about just briefly the 144,000 witnesses. So, in Re- Revelation 7, 1 through 8. Now, turning to the, to the New Testament, the book of Revelation, Revelation 7, 9, and 10 in particular, you need to note that Revelation 7 is a parenthesis. Uh, as we went up through 5 and 6, there's a chronological order with the seals. And then God chooses with the Holy Spirit to interject some information. You know, sometimes the, stu- the students will ask me, you know, how come, you know, they'll say, Pastor Patrick, how come they put, uh, how come this is here? It seems like it's out of order. You know, and, and, and you can tell them, well... It's, uh, it is out of chronological order. It is a parenthesis. But let me tell you this. The information that we're gaining is valuable. The information that we're getting now is going to both help us understand what happened here. And it's also going to help us understand what happens a little bit ahead of time. So chapter 7 is a, is a parenthesis in the chronological order that, that John is, is seeing this revelation. And he's helping us to understand it. In verses 1 through 8, we read about the sealing of these 144,000 witnesses. And you could preach on this and you could teach on this for a long time. But the 144,000 witnesses serve a very important purpose. One, they tell us that they're Jews. They're 12,000 from from the 12 tribes. That's where they get the 144,000. They are sealed by God, just like you and I are sealed by the Holy Spirit. No one... Antichrist or not, those 144,000 are not going to be affected by anything the Antichrist could do to them. Because God has sealed him with his Holy Spirit. And so they're going to be protected throughout. And we know this, we can read this in scripture that those 144,000 make it through the tribulation. And who knows how many they save. We, we, you read in uh, the book of Revelation, it talks about the, un, the innumerable multitude are standing before the throne. So the 144,000 we know had a role in that. Don't know exactly how many you know, they would have been involved in saving. But they would have been involved in saving individuals during that time. So in verses 9 and 10, John sees a multitude standing before the throne of God, praising God. And this is one of these very special passages that, that, that you don't even have to go any further to make the point. Because as you read it, it says this. After this I beheld, here, this is John. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number. It's huge. Of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and, and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And so, as we've just read, this great multitude of believers are dressed in white robes. Those are the righteous redeemed. They are the believers. From all nations, from all kindreds, from all peoples, from all tongues. They are, in part, 
And once again, I, you know, I, I can't, uh, I can't say definitively, but they, but they are definitely part of the fruits of the multitude of God's missionaries. Probably, you know, you'd have to include the work of the 144,000, but together, that's, that's how they got there. They're called, these, the, the missionaries were called to service, but they are also the fruits of other witnessing people that will take place during the tribulation. They, these multitudes, from every people group are in heaven because someone preached to them the gospel of grace. Now, another text that makes the same point, but from a, uh, from a little different perspective, is, is what I'm going to share next. It points out the definitive triumph of God's missions through Jesus Christ in John's heavenly revelation. And that comes in Revelation 5, 5 through 10. Same idea. It's going to make the same point. It says this. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Okay, here's John. John is the, is the one that the elders are talking to. So one of the elders says to John, John, don't cry. John was crying because he could, he could, they could not find somebody that was worthy to take the scroll from God who was sitting on the throne. And so John breaks down in tears. He says, oh, looks like the, the plans got thwarted. It's not going to work. And so he's in tears. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loosen the seventh seals thereof. And I beheld, and I, John, beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, there stood a lamb. This is what John is seeing. He's seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. There stood a lamb as as if it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth unto all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And then, working our way to verse 9, which is once again the point, it's this. And when he had taken the book, when Jesus Christ had taken the book from God, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb. The the representatives, the four and twenty elders are the representatives of the church. Fell down before the Lamb. They fall down before Christ, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. And then here's, of course, the whole point. For thou wast slain, Jesus Christ. You, he was slain. And, but you hast redeemed us. To God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. That's what's going to be in heaven. That's why missions cannot fail. It's, it's a done deal according to scripture. It's just what role are you and I going to play in this? And it has made us, verse 10, and has made us unto our God kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. So ver, verse 9 of, verse, uh, of chapter 5 is an absolute Great encouragement to us. It should be uh, an absolutely wonderful encouragement to all of us that are involved in Christian missions. Whether you're a goer or a sender. Because it's the reminder that people in heaven have been ransomed. or They've been saved by Christ from every once again. I know I've said this so many times. But they've, it, they come from every kindred and every tongue and every people and every nation. So this again is a great encouragement to get on with the task. So that we can be a part of that task 
of frontier missions and reaching those unreached people groups as best we can during this time of the church. They will be there in heaven. It's just a matter of how and when they are reached. I'm totally convinced that scripture says that every people group, and there are a lot of people groups out there, and if you want to really get into it, um, and get, get some statistics. There's a group called the Joshua Project that you can go to their website and you could read things that kind of just boggle your mind. People spend all their time, spend you know, full time studying how many uh, people groups there are, how many unreached people groups there are, how many unengaged people groups there are. And they are making concerted efforts to get missionaries to those, to those areas. All right, let's go to the, this next one. And, and, and I want to say this in, in kind of a, uh, more of a summary, concise way, but four reasons we can be sure that people from every nation, kindred, tongue, and people and nation will be in heaven. Here's, we, we've already done the first one. And, and this could, this, it's already a final argument. You go to Revelation 5, 9, you go to Revelation 7, 9 through 10, there will be people from all those People groups. And, they, and they've gotten there because of God's people witnessing as missionaries down through the ages in some shape or form. You know, whether it's you individually sharing with your neighbor, whether it's you sending out missionaries, or whether it's the 144,000, whether it's the two witnesses from the book of Revelation. Um, I, think it's a team, I think it's a team effort. So, uh, number two, Matthew 24, 35. Says this, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The words of God are more sure than the earth itself, than the heavens itself. I'm pretty sure it's referencing the first and second heavens. But the word of God is more sure than the heavens and the earth and what God says will take place. Another The third, the third concise reason of why missions cannot fail is from uh, Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my namesake will I defer mine anger, and for my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have refined, <clears throat> I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, even for my own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? I will not give my glory unto another. And so the glory of God is at stake. And what, what, what you've been hearing and what I've been saying you know, many times is that God's glory is at stake. And he's not going to share his glory with anyone else. And it's not, ever, it's not possible that it can fail. Because he's an almighty sovereign God of the universe. And what he says is going to happen. Fourth, Job 42.2. I know many of you have studied Job, and and this will be a familiar verse. From Job 42.2. I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. God is sovereign, and he can do all things, and nothing can thwart his purpose. And his purpose is to get representatives from every people, tongue, tribe, and nation to heaven. Now, At present, the task is unfulfilled. We know, we know that. It's just not done. There's a lot of unbelievers out there. God still has other people to save and other sheep to call. 
Again, the fact that God's mission is not yet complete, but one day will be, is a bedrock hope for Christian missions. Everything hangs. This, this, is all, this all hangs on God's sovereignty. All hangs on God's missions, on God's mercy. And he is an all-powerful, has all the authority, and will accomplish that task. And, and that brings us to one last thing that I want to talk about because um, I think it's, it's, God, it's God showing his absolute incredible patience with the world. You know, sometimes we wonder, you know, how, why does God put up with us? Why doesn't he just, you know, bring things to an end? You know, isn't, isn't he seeing enough, you know, junk take place? Why doesn't he just kibosh the thing? And in Revelation 14, 6... In Revelation 14, 6 and 7, it's, it's to me, I like it to describe it as the last stage of missions. The setting is the seven-year tribulation. So what I'm going to conclude with here is from Revelation 14, 6 and 7, we're in the tribulation, which means the church has been raptured out. The church is gone. It's been raptured out of the world, but God is still saving people throughout this seven-year tribulation. We know that he's been using, as I've said, the 144,000. He's using the two witnesses. But now, it's like he's pulling out all the stoppers. He's, it's, it's getting towards the end. Time is, is really uh, winding down. And so, it, it, it's, it just seems like God is saying, I'm going to give them one more chance. And what he does is a first-time thing that he's never done before. And it, and it talks about it in Revelation 14, 6 and 7. This is what he says. John, uh, John says, I saw another angel in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel. To preach unto them that dwell on the earth. And to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. To me, it's kind of like... What didn't get done pre-rapture is going to get done now. In other words, God is going to get the job done somehow, some way. No one is left out. The angel calls out in verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour. This is the, this is the angel that is, uh, is it described. He's in the highest location. Everybody can hear Him. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment is come. The, the seven bulls are right around the corner. They're, they're the next thing prophetically. They're going to get dumped out. It's almost over. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of the earth. And as you probably know, verse chapter 14, where we just read about those angels comes right after chapter 13, where we read about this, this very powerful antichrist and his, and his sidekick, the false prophet. And what chapter 14 is, is an answer to that Antichrist. And it's the answer to that false prophet that seems to be so overwhelmingly powerful. And so this is part of the God's response to the two of those of the unholy trinity. Throw in Satan and you got the, the unholy trinity altogether with the Antichrist and the false prophet and Satan. So John sees three angels in, in verses 6 through 9. Flying through the midair. 
The first angel of verse 6 is the one that is of interest to us. That's the one that we just talked about. But as you read the other verses, you'll take a quick look and there's two other ones. There's the second angel, verse 8. He announces the fall of Babylon. That basically is announcing the fall of, of, of evil that, was, has, that has existed from time immemorial. It's coming to an end. That's what Babylon is all about. The great harlot. And the third angel announces that anyone that takes the mark of the beast, 666, is doomed to hell. Those that take the mark of the beast are taking it for... Um, they're, 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 they're trying to gain a leg up in the world economically. They're going to do that so they can get food and they can get access to material things. But it totally backfires. This angel had the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. This is the only place in the Bible where the gospel is described as the everlasting gospel. It has some that are close and similar, but this is the only place where it talks about it as having the everlasting gospel preached by an angel, proclaiming it throughout the world. The word gospel, of course, refers to the good news that Jesus Christ suffered death on the cross to obtain salvation for mankind and that he rose to life again and was exalted to the right hand of God in heaven. And we await his return in majesty to, to consummate God's kingdom. And so the fact that this message by this angel is everlasting is significant. It has to be significant because nothing is insignificant in scripture. It, it's important for a reason. The gospel is everlasting in that it is an eternally unchanging message. So the vision of these angels from Revelation 14 are events that will take place during the tribulation. Before the, right before the final judgment of the seven bowls that follows up in Revelation chapters 15 and 16. God is going to give all of mankind one last opportunity to turn from their sin and trust in Christ to receive this gift of eternal life. This angel from verse 6 is broadcasting the everlasting gospel to the whole earth. He's in, once again, he's telling us that this angel is in the highest, most prominent physical position so that everybody can hear him. I don't know exactly how that's going to work, but he's right in a position where everybody can hear him with the loudest possible voice, it's that. To maximize the number of people that are going to hear this last time. God is appealing to mankind one final time during the seven-year tribulation period to reject the lies of Satan, to reject the lies of the Antichrist, to reject the lies of the false prophet, and respond to the eternal truth of God. False doctrines are going to come and go, and new teachings are like winds and waves you know, that toss people about. But I'll tell you what, it's going to be especially chaotic during the tribulation with, this, with the Antichrist. Because when he initially comes, he's going to have the answers. He's going to be able to solve problems from a human perspective. But God has the answers to counter the lies and the false teaching of the beast and the false prophet. The message of salvation through faith in Christ is an eternal truth. It is as solid and unchanging as God himself. And those who believe the gospel will reap those everlasting benefits. And then finally, the work of missions cannot fail. And if that, if that can be seared into our brain, it can be an encouragement to us. After proclaiming the everlasting gospel through an angel, God will shortly finish his work of judgment 
upon a sinful world. The work of missions cannot fail. God is giving us the opportunity to be a part of this. Are we taking advantage of that opportunity? God is giving us an opportunity to be a part of this missionary task during this time called the church age, before the rapture. But following the rapture and during the tribulation, he's going to use multiple supernatural means to save people during the tribulation because he's a merciful and a patient God. The job's going to get done. It cannot fail. And the question is, you know, what role do we have in it? Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much for your wonderful word. Thank you for the, the, the reality that missions cannot fail. We know that there are going to be representatives from every people and tongue and, and tribe and nation in, in heaven someday. And then I, I guess the bottom line question is what role do we play in that and how, uh, how are we going to be used? Are we going to be senders or uh, how, are we going to be goers? How is that all going to play out in our individual lives? Lord, I just ask you to go before each one of us. And may we just be spiritually wise enough to see the roles that you would have us serve. Be able to see whether we're going to be senders or goers. And then to be willing to listen to that still small voice. Thank you, Lord, for each person who's here. Thank you for this time together. In your son's precious name. Amen. And I was to announce that.